In many ways, this is a very uh, powerful and special time of year, uh, particularly in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, this time of um, when darkness is at its maximum and we start shifting towards light. And this year, particularly powerful and pronounced because of the confluence of the winter solstice, the full moon, and the total lunar eclipse, um, all of which happened yesterday. And there was uh, the full moon visible this morning, at least here, uh, early, early on. And in so many of the world's traditions, this is a time of stopping, much like the natural world is stopping, and seeking inward illumination. This is what that this time of year signifies, or how it is interpreted by so many cultures, by Native American cultures, by most cultures really around the world, but we can find very distinct winter solstice rituals in Iran, in Pakistan, Tibet, China, Native American, you know, and then those uh, traditions which have been very strong in the Western world, the uh, Jewish tradition of Hanukkah, tra- tradition of the, the, uh, the lights, the kind of the miracle of, of lights, and then the way that uh, Christian tradition has also brought that forward. This time of year is so powerful, it was able to shift the birthday of Jesus from April to December 25th. <laughs> Scholars say that Jesus' actual birthday was April. Interesting. <laughs> but really, uh, one, uh, in the tradition, interpreting his birth death and in the tradition, the resurrection, as a, uh, also a, a part of the very common story of darkness and then light. And so it's a period in which we can really, in a way, if we have the opportunity and so choose, can be like the natural world, which is really in many ways, at least outwardly, has stopped. And there's something that is quite beautiful about this time of darkness and even the way the rain is really calling forth a kind of inwardness, calling forth a time to um, take stock of our lives, to go within, to look. And of course, that's challenging in some ways, including because of the fact that the culture at large, often at this time, emphasizes frenzy. (laughs) Some of you may still have last minute shopping to do. A few heads nodding. (laughs) And so it's interesting that uh, there often is frenzy and difficulty and you know, pressure at times, not always. And then, of course, uh, New Year's is often also 
at least for some, uh, a kind of a frenzy. And so to some extent when we imitate nature and go into that time of silence, we're going against some of the trends of the culture. And sometimes it takes a conscious intention. You know, for myself, this time has been very, very important and beautiful, probably for 20 or 25, probably 25 of the last 30 years, this has been a time of retreat for me. Somewhere of the time between the winter solstice and the new year, a time to have at least uh, some days of silence, of not doing, of stopping like the natural world. And if that is a possibility for you, it can be very uh, important and fruitful. You may consider even to take one or two days. You know, I remember one year, a bunch of friends, we, about, you know, 10 or 15 of us, we just decided we would do, right at the New Year's Day, we would do on, I think on the 31st and 1st, we would do two days of silent sitting and walking, just, you know, kind of from the morning until the evening, and then on the 1st, maybe from 9 to 5, we would just do that in someone's living room. And we just had two days of silence together, and it really was um, quite wonderful, simple. And so if you have that chance, you might consider really at least having some time in which we look to the uh, relative darkness and the coming light as, as guides. And so I want to talk briefly about how we might take these times as um, a suggestion for how we practice. And we might be like the dark world and be like the coming of light and see the way that that can really support our practice. Because when we do that some at this time, I think it's... um, a reinforcement of our practice, really, to be very much lined up with the natural world. So I want to talk about some aspects of practicing with both dark and light. And then we'll do a a ritual that continues those themes in another manner that will have a chance also for inner reflection in the course of the ritual. So first, some some reflections on darkness. And I think about this time as a time to go further into the darkness. And we can think of the darkness as having several meanings. It can mean being like the natural world and stopping, being relatively silent, stopping activity, at least for a time. It can also point to the aspect of darkness as being with the unknown, with the mystery. It can also point to the way we sometimes use darkness metaphorically as meaning the ability to be with difficulties. And a fourth aspect, which I think is quite important, is being with darkness and understanding the creative or generative or, we might say, fertile dimensions of darkness. The way that being with the dark does bring light. 
And then we can look some at also the conscious cultivation of light. Because in many ways, just like the natural world, we, in our practice, very much learn to be with darkness, and out of that darkness comes light. And we also consciously bring forth light in our practice. And our practice, in many ways, thus uh, imitates nature at this time. So we, we stop as when we sit. We stop, we're silent, we listen. We are present when we practice mindfulness in the way we did this morning. We're really not so much trying to make anything happen, but we're open to what is um, unknown. We try to maintain that openness. And we also learn better how to be with difficulties. And over time, we see the way that all of those three aspects, uh, stopping, the uh, being with the unknown, and being sometimes with difficulties, all are potentially fertile, creative, dynamic, generative, bringing forth the light. A poem by Wendell Berry. Urging us to be with the dark. He says to know the dark with a light is actually to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. (laughs) Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. To know the dark, go dark. Uh, An invitation to do that in our own ways at this time. And so in our practice, we, we stop. We use the breath. <clears throat> we use various ways to anchor attention so that our active minds might also come towards resting. We can stop physically, but our minds sometimes keep on going. And our practice partly is to use practices through which our repetitive, habitual minds tend to come towards stopping. And that permits something deeper to come to the surface. And that's really at the core of our practice is to simplify experience as we do here when we sit. It's a simplification. It's kind of like a laboratory or a training period in which we stop. We use aspects, we might say, of training of the mind and heart and body in order that we might come to greater inner silence as well as outer silence with the understanding that out of that inner silence comes forth actually uh, more awareness, more insight, comes forth certain uh, kinds of gifts, comes forth light. Sometimes what comes forth also is what's beneath the surface and may be unresolved. Sometimes when we sit quietly, we say, oh yeah, that part of my life. My busyness had covered it over. 
ah, yes, I'm not really living in this part of my life as I most want to live. And that comes forth too. So the stopping brings forth uh, sometimes uh, what we need to attend to. And so that stopping is really crucial. I think of the old Supreme song from the 1960s. Stop in the name of love. (laughs) That's our practice. (laughs) Stop in the name of love. Stop in the name. Remember that song? (laughs) Okay. So first, like darkness outside, we stop. And we also have this quality of openness. Uh, We might say being with the dark as being with the unknown or developing the capacity to be with the unknown. And our sitting practice and our practice generally is so wonderful for that. And if you can, in some ways, have a quiet time in the next uh, week, two weeks, three weeks, and be with that unknown. And I think of that in relation to our practice in two main ways. There's one way in which we're with the unknown, or we have the potential to be with the unknown, to look at that which is unresolved in our lives. There's a way in which we sit with the unknown, and I find this particularly when I do retreats. And historically, um, it's like a checking in on what's there in my life. To use the words of a Mary Oliver poem, where am I? with this one wild, precious life of mine. Where am I? And we need sometimes to be silent, stop, and be with not knowing in order to see what's there. And I know it's been very precious for me. Uh, you know, even when it se- you know, someone could look outwardly and say things seem, oh yeah, okay, seems like that one's a little worked out. Maybe not that one, but just that sitting it's to actually not even always the content, but it's to go to a deeper level of silence and listening and to see what's there. And that's also an aspect of being with the dark. We can do that in this large way and asking where my life is. And we can have this quality of openness. Uh, some of you know the beautiful Rilke poem where Rilke responds to... Uh, a person he calls the young poet. This is the uh, short, small text called Letters to a Young Poet. And the young poet was 21, and Rilke was an ancient 29 years old. And, you know, (laughs) dispensing, actually dispensing great wisdom, you know. Uh, And the, the young poet wanted everything to be worked out instantly. And Rilke really invited him to be with the unknown, the unknown parts of his life. This is what he said, have patience with everything that remains unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves, like locked rooms and like books written in a foreign language. Do not look for the answers. They cannot now be given to you because you could not live them. It is a question of experiencing everything. At present, you need to live the question. Perhaps you will gradually, without even noticing it, find yourself experiencing the answer some distant day. 
And so we sit with the unknown and we sit with the um, unresolved. There's, there are qualities of patience, of equanimity with what's not worked out. Trusting, really, we might say, in the fertile nature of the darkness. And we do that also in our sitting. Just in our very ordinary sitting, it's a wonderful intention to give at the beginning of one's practice, just to say, may I sit and just be with whatever happens and not try to manufacture what should happen in my meditation. Sometimes we do that. You know, we say, okay, I'm going to do this and do that and try to get to that level of peace or calm that I had yesterday or last week or six months ago. And there's something very important and radical about just sitting and we do the practice with the breath, but we, in a way, are open. Sometimes when I'm on retreat, I do that at every sitting. I just say, I do not know what's going to happen, and I want to just sit with whatever happens. It takes some courage to do that, doesn't it? You know, to do that continually. Because what might happen might sometimes be wonderful, might sometimes be hard. And we have to, in a way, let go of the urge to control and just be present. And that points really to a third aspect of being with the dark, which is to be able to be with the difficult. And it's one of the great fruits of our practice that we, through the support from others and through the instructions, we can become more and more skillful with being with a variety of challenging states of mind and body and heart. You know, in a way, we do that at the end of the morning when we do this group practice together and we sit here and we listen to what people have to say and sometimes the reflections are about difficulties that a friend or a relative or oneself is having and sometimes of course they're about gratitude or something beautiful you know as we heard uh, a number of them this morning quite quite moving at times but You know, just like that outward practice, we cultivate an ability simply to be there and receive and and develop more and more some kind of balance and equanimity. And we do that really simply through experience. There's really no other way. You know, it's through opening and sitting with various difficult emotions over time. And I learn how to be present to my anger or my sadness or my grief or my fear or my worried mind or my catastrophic story tendencies. Does anyone have those? And I watch that. I learn how to be with it, you know, and we learn how to notice the storylines rather than get taken away by them. We know how to sometimes move from the level of repetitive mind and just feel the body, which is a very helpful tool with difficult um, emotions and difficult thoughts. It's kind of come back down to the body. And we learn how to be with uh, physical pain or unpleasant aspects of the body 
we sometimes sit with that when we know that there's not damage being done, when there's just a discomfort in the body, we learn to be with that. We learn to open, be present with that in the body, in the heart. And through that, we develop a kind of, uh, a kind of balance. In a way, we make friends with our challenges. We make friends with fear, with anger, where they previously scared us. Through practice, we might not want them. We might say, oh yeah, fear has arrived again. But then, maybe the moment later we say, and I know how to work with that. You know, I know how to sit with that quality. And we really do this as we sit with difficulties. We do this for ourselves, but we also very much do this for others. You know, that when I can be with my own difficulties, I, prov- I really take away the need for others to deal with my reactivity, which is a tremendous gift. The Zen teacher John Tarrant once said, when I actually work with my own darkness, using darkness as in the sense of difficulty, I prevent others from having to carry it for me. And we also, in a way, can be a model for others. Our culture, in many ways, doesn't know how to deal with difficulties very well. You know, shies away from darkness in a, in a variety of ways. You know, wants to just go towards the light. And so it becomes, at times, um, a false light. You know, that if we can't really be open to darkness, we can't really fully open to light and we may be grabbing hold of the light in order to get rid of the so-called dark. And so when we do that, it's a gift for others. And we see as we stay with um, darkness in all these ways that there are gifts that come. You know, that in a way, the capacity to be with the darkness can really bring the light uh, in various ways. That when we, when we stop and are silent, sometimes we hear what we need to hear. You know, in a way, I, I was thinking of this in paradoxical language, we stop in order to learn how to move better. We're silent in order to hear, as it were, the call for what comes next. You know, we stay with the unknown and sometimes we come to know that we wouldn't be able to know unless we were with the unknown. And we, we're with the difficult and out of the difficult can come insight and learning and a touching, actually, of something much deeper. There's this wonderful story that um, I've heard from Rachel Naomi Remen, and some of you may have heard this. It's a story about a young man who was in his 20s who came to work with her. She's a doctor and healer and physician, and this is in her book called Kitchen Table Wisdom. And this young man had lost a leg because of cancer in his 20s and was very bitter and angry. He had been an athlete 
and he came to work with her and she worked with a lot of modalities, but one modality was art. And she asked him to draw an image of himself. And he drew a vase. And in the center of the vase were a lot of jagged black lines as if the vase was totally broken, shattered. And that was his sense of himself at the beginning. He eventually worked with her. I think this was with a common wheel in uh, Bolinas, where, where she has a center and has worked with um, also Dr. Michael Lerner. Some of you may know of his work. And he stayed there for quite a while and there was a lot of movement. He came to grips with his anger, with his bitterness, with his sense of unfairness through hard processes, right? And some of, probably most of us have had maybe not something with such an extreme circumstance, but we've, we've, I imagine we've all had our own ways of dealing with um, those kind of experiences. And he stayed with it, you know, and he started to have a lot of movement and he actually came to help uh, Dr. Remen with some of her work. In particular, there's a story when she tells the story of there was a young woman who had a history in her family of breast cancer and she actually lost her breast in her 20s and also was tremendously bitter and fearful and in a very difficult state and he worked with her. And when he first was working with her, she was in this very difficult state and she didn't know that he had had loss in himself. She didn't know that his leg was actually uh, a prosthetic. And at one moment when she was complaining and having a lot of self-pity, he just took the leg off (laughs) right in front of her, (laughs) shocking her totally and did a one-legged dance (laughs) just right in front of her and she was flabbergasted. Eventually they got married. And he came back near the end of the time he was working with her. And um, Dr. Remen asked, asked him, um, let's look at that original drawing that you did. And he looked at the drawing with her for a while and I think went, went within quite, quite deeply. And then there were crayons nearby and he said, that drawing is incomplete. And he took a yellow crayon and he started drawing all these lines coming out from the um, jagged edges in that vase. And he said, this is where, this is where the light comes in. And I think that's, I think we may know that from our own experience and in various ways, that out of being with the dark, which isn't easy at times, the, the light can come. You know, and, that, and that, so the light can come with the dark and we can also, as we do in this practice, we can deliberately cultivate the light. You know, I think we do that in many ways when we meditate, we sit with um, Our practices, we develop mindfulness, we develop loving-kindness, 
we begin to access, sometimes slowly, what we might call an inner radiance. You know, that in so many traditions is said to be our basic nature. You know, there's a wonderful line, actually a few places, where the Buddha says, there is this quality of mind and heart which is brightly shining and luminous. And when we practice, we cultivate that. And it's accessible. And it's connected in those texts with the quality of loving kindness. You know, so there, there's the way that this natural radiance is there, comes out as love, it can come out as clarity, as awareness. And we cultivate that. And more and more as we do that, this practice, the radiance gets bigger. And more and more, we live from that radiance. You know, we we'll call it a luminosity of, of heart and mind. And we see that the, you know, the, there, there are these aspects that are difficult, but increasingly, as we practice, the luminous aspects become more the resources and the sources from which we live and from which we can respond to what's difficult. I think I'll just finish and then we'll move to the ritual. I'll finish with a wonderful poem by Pablo Neruda about being with the darkness and being with the light. One of my favorites, so I think I probably have read it before. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. If each day falls inside each night, there exists a well where clarity is imprisoned. We need to sit on the rim of the well of darkness and fish for fallen light with patience. So at this moment, we will sit on the rim of the well of darkness in part by turning off the lights and sitting together. So we'll sit just for maybe five or six, seven minutes. And I'll invite each of us as we sit, we can, this of course isn't total darkness, but it's the best we can do (laughs) right now. But if you close your eyes, it gets darker. 
And I'll invite us as we sit for a short time with the darkness, just to reflect at the beginning of what sitting with darkness means for you. It can be any of those themes I mentioned, such as stopping, being silent, being with the unknown, being with the difficult, letting the creative and generative come out of the darkness. So just just reflect briefly and then we'll sit together.
as we continue to sit with uh, the darkness. like to invite you to ask yourself, is there some intention about your own life, some aspect of your life that comes out of this being with the dark, some intention for what comes next, that comes out of being willing to be with the darkness We'll just sit with this for a minute or two. Still keeping this quality of inner attention, we can invite the light. We can be present for this mystery of darkness becoming light. I'd like to invite us to chant together. And as we chant, light will return. And the chant that I'd like to invite us to do is really a version of the loving-kindness chant, loving-kindness phrases. We'll be chanting in Pali the words for may all beings be happy, which is sabe, sata, suki, hontu. Sabe means all. Sata means beings. Suki is a derivative of sukha, which means happiness. Sukha, the the opposite of dukkha, (laughs) some of you know. And then uh, hantu is more more the the verb form. May all beings be happy. Sabe, sata, suki, hantu. And I'll lead the chant. And as... We continue with the chant. The lights will slowly come on. And we can be aware of that transition as we chant. Sabe sata suki hantu. Sabe sata suki hantu. Sabe sata suki on to
the symbolism here on the table in front. Imagining we have three lights. We can imagine as we invite the light that one is for ourselves, for our own personal illumination and growth in this coming period. We can be with that light and let that light symbolize that quality for each of ourselves. Maybe reconnecting with that intention. So the light on the right for ourselves, the light on the left for others, wishing for the well-being of others, letting that light on the left side symbolize that and just to be with that. This widening circle, maybe starting with people close to us but going out in all directions, wishing well, much like our loving-kindness practice radiating out towards all beings. We can stay with that just for a moment. And then the light in the center, symbolizing really the light that holds everything, that holds all beings, symbolized by the proximity to the Buddha. We can call it the awakened mind and heart. And the way that that holds everything, holds ourselves, holds others.
that each of us can access. And let's sit with that quality, really, of both inner and outer illumination that holds everything. And now I'd like to do a short practice that I learned from John Travis, which is a Tibetan practice, a version of a practice some of you may know called Tonglen, which is really about letting the compassion, letting the mind and heart of compassion hold both our own difficulties and be willing to offer light to others. So in the traditional practice, one would breathe in difficulty and breathe out relief. It's a wonderful practice that one can do. And in this version, I'd like you, if you want to go inside for a moment, but just first bring to mind your own difficulties or suffering whatever they may be. And imagine that collecting in your heart as a kind of dark, smoky energy. Reflecting on whatever difficulties there are whatever one's challenges, loneliness or anger, despair, whatever is hard for oneself, lack of fairness, physical difficulties perhaps, loss, letting them form in the heart as a kind of dark, smoky energy. Building up. Building up. We're familiar with it. In a moment, we will take our hand over our heart and in a sense, take that difficult, smoky, dark energy and throw it out into the world where it turns into light. 
not quite yet. Let it build up. You want to put your hand on your heart. Filling that dark, smoky energy. And we'll be saying the word Pate, which is Tibetan tradition. (laughs) We'll be saying that word all together at the moment that we release that dark, smoky energy where it turns into light and goes out into the world. One, two, three, eight. Can imagine the release and that light coming from going out from one's heart. just sitting for a few moments with this quality of openness that could be with the difficulty, willing to be with the difficulty, sit with this basic openness, maybe some trust in your own goodness, in a basic goodness that is the birthright of humans, and just to sit with that quality for a few moments. And being with the intentions that come again from this morning, from your life, for the next cycle of time. What intentions do you want to bring forth? Just to sit with those silently. In closing, we want to end with a version of the traditional dedication of merit. So may our own willingness to release what we might call patterns leading to suffering or dysfunctional patterns or whatever language we want to use that we're willing to look at, to be with, to release, as in this practice of releasing the dark smoke 
whatever benefits there may be from our willingness to release old patterns or negative patterns, and whatever fruits there may be from our welcoming of the light and cultivation of the light in ourselves and in others. May the benefits from both that purification and cultivation, may those benefits be shared with all those, those with whom we're in contact and then beyond beyond those immediate contacts, out into the world, wishing for the healing and the freedom of all beings without exception. you for for being part of our really collective process of uh, renewal. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.